0: Welcome to Grit, a monthly podcast focused on stories of grit and greatness from the streets to the suites. Grit is a forum for stories about people who possess uncommon work ethic, drive, and passion. They are movers, shakers, role models, overachievers who are under the radar. Hello, I'm Carmen Argersinger. I'm the manager of strategic partnerships for Delta Dental of Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana, and I'm hosting Grit this month. At Delta Dental, I manage our corporate investments in the community, those charitable gifts we give to build healthy, smart, vibrant communities for all. And I lead the company volunteer program, through which we put a lot of sweat equity into the communities where we do business. This is a big time of year for charitable giving, and we're fortunate to welcome Rachel Decker, president of Detroit Philanthropy, to GRIT to talk to us about charitable giving, Giving Tuesday, and much more. Welcome, Rachel.
1: Hi, Carmen, thanks for having
0: me. Thanks for joining us. Rachel, you help Metro Detroit philanthropists fulfill their true charitable intentions. First of all, tell us how you landed in this line of work and then describe for us exactly how you do what you do.
1: Yeah. So, you know, working with philanthropists is certainly a part of what I do, but it's really twofold. So I like to say that I work on both sides of the philanthropy fence. One, I help nonprofits with their fundraising strategy. And then I also work with philanthropists, which is both businesses and people, to help them develop the strategies for how and who they give their financial support to. Um, so I got into this work after about 20 years as a fundraiser working directly for nonprofits. Um, and I've really founded Detroit Philanthropy because I saw that there was frequently a disconnect between those two groups, being the nonprofit and the funder. Um, you know, they speak very different languages and have different goals. So The reason that the company exists is to really help them work through um, how they navigate that relationship and ultimately are able to impact the community in a bigger and stronger way. So with that explanation, would it be fair for us to call you a matchmaker, pairing those who have money with those who need it? A little bit. I would say that matchmaker is probably too strong of a word. Um, I do certainly connect people when I know that there is a strategic fit. So For instance, I um, have a client now who's working to build a play park um, at their location for children. And, you know, I also happen to know somebody whose business is really interested in supporting that kind of work. They like to build playgrounds so that they can financially support, but then also bring out their employees and engage them in the process. So that was definitely, you know, a connection that I was able to make. And then also, you know in working with a philanthropist, you know, sometimes they come to me and are specifically looking for a certain kind of project or an organization with a specific mission. So then I'm able to, you know, sort of open up my Rolodex. um, I guess if Rolodex still exists (laughs) Um, and, you know, and able to at least give them two or three folks that I think would maybe be a good fit, and then let them run with the ball from there.
0: So it sounds like maybe facilitator is a little bit better. Yeah, than that's probably a better word. Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so now it may surprise some people, but you know, giving away money isn't exactly easy if you want to have a real impact. What are some of the challenges that you found high wealth individuals, foundations and corporate donors face?
1: So I think the biggest thing is that, you know, there are 7,000 nonprofit organizations in the metro Detroit area, (laughs) which is a lot. Um, So I think that that's oftentimes just hard for people to sift through, right? To know who's actually having an impact, um, but also just to think through about who they really want to support. So sometimes it's, you know, somebody who's very committed to supporting K through 12 education, um, so, you know, it's not like you can just go to a listing of those organizations, right? So knowing who's doing the work that you want to fund, and then also someone who's doing that work in a really impactful and wonderful way, I think is just difficult to navigate. Um, you know, I, I heard once from, a, a someone who founded a, a, a foundation, um, and they said, "You know, we just thought we were giving away money. How hard could that be?" <laughs> <laughs> and it was like after almost a year of trying to do it themselves, they said, "You know, we really need some professional help. there's There's a lot more strategy and a lot more thought that needs to go into that." So I think that that's just where folks run into issues.
0: We know that the last couple of years have been extremely difficult on the nonprofit sector. What are some changes that you've seen nonprofits make as a result of the pandemic and what are some of the lessons that they've learned?
1: I think the biggest thing that we saw, especially early on, is that they shifted away from event fundraising. I mean, they, they had to. Right. We couldn't gather together. So they had to be very creative and thinking about how to fill that funding gap. You know, if the annual gala brought in one hundred thousand dollars, how are they going to make up that money? So, you know, I think we saw folks get really creative, right? We were all going to those virtual events and zooming in with our cocktails and our like box of food that was delivered to the door, <laughs> all those fun things. Um, but I really just, I think it, it forced organizations to get creative with their fundraising. And I think that that we're seeing that, that carry through now, um, even though events are, we're, we are able to gather again in person. I know that a lot of organizations have still shifted away from it, right? Because we know that events take a lot of time. Um, So sometimes, you know, especially smaller events, when you look at the ROI, they're really not generating a ton of revenue once you factor in staff time and things like that. So, you know, they've been able to shift away from that and be able to make up that gap. So I think that now they're seeing they don't necessarily need all the parties that they were having before, um, that there's a different way to do that. And I think just in general, it forced them to diversify where they were getting funding, right? That you can't put all your eggs in one basket, that there was just too much going on during that time. So I think that they've definitely made some meaningful connections more with their individual donors and with the, on the corporate side and um, everything just isn't about sponsorships. So I will also add that just, you know, kind of outside of fundraising specifically, I think that nonprofits learned the importance of investing in technology as well as in capacity or administration, you know, that they had to ramp up in so many ways in the technology space just to just to do business, but also to serve their clients and do things differently. So I think that we've all learned the importance of that where, you know, back in the day, nonprofits were just taking whatever free technology was donated from a business that they partnered with, right? And now they know that they actually need to spend um, capital to have those resources on hand.
0: So speaking of spending that capital for resources and the struggles that our nonprofits have had, have you seen some nonprofits that closed up shop or merged with another because of what happened over the last few
1: years? Um, I haven't really seen a lot that have closed, um, which I think is just, I know that they're out there, but I think that they were sort of the smaller ones um, that maybe we're not all as familiar with in the first place um, that were struggling. I do know that there's been a little bit of collaboration and mergers. You know, the most recent and biggest one that comes to mind is Easter Seals and Mork. That was just in Cranes, um, I think, uh, in the last month or so. So, you know, but honestly, you know, my two senses that there hasn't been enough. You know, I, I mean, again, going back to my seven thousand nonprofits, <laughs> that's just it's a lot, and a lot of them duplicate services, have very similar missions. And in talking to funders in the last six months, all I hear them preaching about is wanting to see more collaboration with organizations, you know, they want to see them partner together to solve similar problems, you know, if they have missions, um, that would be very collaborative, it doesn't make sense that they're trying to tackle problems in a silo. So, you know, I would love to see more organizations merge. um, And I do hope that that's something that, that will continue or sort of increase in the years to come.
0: Now, as you know, Delta Dental is very proud to sponsor your popular webinar series that's finally going to be done in person now (laughs) more than online. So in the webinars, you did a great job of bringing together the best and the brightest funders and nonprofit leaders. I was fortunate enough to participate in a few of the events and found the conversations really relevant and helpful. Tell me what you learned through that process and what do you think will be different about doing them in person now?
1: Yes. Well, first, you know, thank you so much for Delta Dental support. (laughs) You guys have been with me from the very beginning when I was doing it from the dining room table. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I really appreciate how invaluable of a partner you have been. Um, And yeah, you know, the series has had over 700 people register since mid-2020 when we launched, and that represents almost 500 different organizations from really mostly across Michigan, but we've also had a lot of some out-of-state folks um, just being able to have some reach with them being virtual. So, you know, I, I think the lesson that we learned the most and what I like to tell people now has become a bit of our secret sauce is that I'm able to leverage my network of funders from both the foundation and corporate space and be able to connect them with smaller nonprofits who normally wouldn't have that level of access. So, you know, I'm I'm really proud of the fact that we're able to create a little bit more equity in the philanthropic space, you know, that it, it it's not so much of a who you know and how you can get funding from them, but there is a way for folks to really be able to connect and to learn and understand what funders are looking for. So, you know, I'm really proud of that work and that, you know, that we have also been able to offer it at no cost because of our sponsors like you guys, that that's really been helpful again for those very, you know, we have very small organizations that attend and that tune into those webinars. So it's really been wonderful. You know, and I think in terms of what to expect from next year is besides the fact that I'm very excited to not feel like I'm on candid camera. I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, running into people in the street who know me and I don't know them is very weird. <laughs> So I am looking forward to being able to see the audience that I'm talking to. You know, so I think we can expect the same great speakers, the same great content. I know the folks that I've already spoken to, letting them know we're going to be in person are, are really just as excited about it as I am. So I know we'll still have great panelists. You know, the thing that I think is really going to be the most beneficial about being in person is just more audience engagement. You know, we, we get a few questions that will come in online from the listeners, but I think just, you know, even though we're two years into it, right, like navigating the technology and being able to send in questions, is still, you know, more cumbersome than it is to just raise your hand in a room. So I'm hoping that we'll get more audience questions that way and a little bit less of just, you know, the questions that I'm asking.
0: Great. Well, we're looking forward to seeing how all of that plays out and being a part of it. Now, on to Giving Tuesday. Right. (laughs) Anyone who has worked in the nonprofit world knows that Giving Tuesday, that awesome day, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, after Black Friday, after Small Business Saturday, and after Cyber Monday, (laughs) seems like a necessary but sometimes kind of awful ritual what are your feelings around whether Giving Tuesday is something that nonprofits need to participate in? Can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of running a Giving Tuesday campaign?
1: Yeah, I mean, my short answer is no, they do not need to participate. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, what we what the statistics tell us is that Giving Tuesday only accounts for 0.5% of all charitable giving. Um, that was from last year in 2021. So it's certainly not a big number. And what we also know is that about 80% of those donors never give a get to an organization, right? They come in for the one day, they give you a hundred bucks and you never talk to them again. So, you know, I think it's really about like, ultimately what's your strategy, you know, when those donors come in for that first time contribution and give you that 50 or a hundred dollars, like, what are you doing? What's the next step? How are you turning that, you know, very transactional-based fundraising into more relationship-based, right? How are you taking it to the next level so that they continue to give? Because we also know that finding new donors is far more expensive of a task than just keeping the donors that you have happy and engaged in your work. So so I think sometimes people put a lot of emphasis on it because they feel like if they don't, that they're somehow missing out on some opportunity to raise funds. And that's really just not the case. Um, I think, you know, also, right. Like you probably get 30 emails that day, Carmen, like (laughs) from organizations asking you for money and to participate in our campaign. And we've got this match. I don't, I mean, just a million different things. Right. And I, I, I feel like it just irritates your current donors more (laughs) than anything. They're bombarded. They feel nickel and dimed. Like, you know, I mean, we've already given you a $10,000 check and now you're just trying to get me to give again right i mean it's just i think a lot of it just turns folks off in a way that i don't know that it's it's completely necessary but you know that side if you're a smaller newer organization and you're really trying to build a donor base um this is a great way to to get your message out and you know i would encourage people to do more on social media than they're doing with those email blasts um you know and encouraging the folks that are giving to you then to to reshare that stuff out on Facebook and Instagram and help sh- spread your message, um, but yeah, you know, it's kind of mixed feelings. But ultimately, I I don't really love the the whole concept, which <laughs> <But, laughs> you know a- put me in the minority. I don't. I mean, I think <laughs> you know, I know that there are a lot of people that love it, but I just I don't know that it's it's worth all the hype. I think that's a great perspective. So.
0: <laughs> Now, uh, transitioning a little bit from Giving Tuesday, that one day that, you know, is is a small percentage, end of year giving, that's a completely different concept and a pretty big deal for a lot Mm -hmm. of our nonprofits. So lots of people scramble to get those last minute gifts in for tax deductions. How much giving happens in fourth quarter compared to the rest of the year?
1: Yeah. So I don't actually know the fourth quarter number, but I know that in the month of December, it's 30% of charitable giving and right. right? Which is a lot, right? Like December is one 12th of the year (laughs) (laughs) and over a quarter of all contributions come in in that month. And I think honestly, like the statistic in those last three days of December is like 10% or something like It's it's kind of absurd how heavy giving is at the year end. Um, So you know some of it is driven by right like folks wanting to get the tax write off or you know family foundations that are coming to the end of the year and realizing they haven't met their five percent disbursement rate or something like that. Um, But you know what I really try to encourage the philanthropists that I work with and certainly just you know donors like you people on the street that just give is that needs exist all year round right? I mean, there's not any more need in December than there is in June. So keep that in mind. I mean, both in terms of the financial support that you're providing, but also volunteerism, you know, everybody wants to show up on Thanksgiving day and serve turkey dinners. They want to buy gifts for families in need. You know, they want to throw holiday parties for kids, like all of that stuff. But those same people are living in that domestic violence shelter in June, right? So how can you make their day brighter then just like you want to do in December? So, you know, I think it's just really important for folks to keep that in mind. Um, And, you know, what I encourage people to do is really to just have a strategy. Um, I mean, even if you're giving away a thousand dollars a year, right? Like know what that budget is at the beginning of the year, set aside your charitable budget Know maybe the, the two or three organizations that you know you're going to support every year. Divide up that pot, however you normally would, right? Save a little bit in case something comes up, right? You get invited to a gala next weekend if you need to buy a ticket, you know, all of that, those kinds of things. Um, and to just, you know, be mindful of what the nonprofit needs, not just what you assume that they need. I think that that's oftentimes something that I used to see a lot um, when I was a development director was you know, we would see folks come to us and say, you know, we did a, a drive at our office and we collected stuffed animals for all the kids in the shelter. Well, the shelter doesn't take stuffed animals because if you have kids, you know that stuffed animals carry around a lot of germs. <laughs> they go in mouths and on floors and in the mouth of the kid next to them and they can't really be washed in a great way. (laughs) Like they have eyes and little pieces that fall off that maybe aren't appropriate for all age groups. So, you know, those are not the kinds of like, it's very well meaning. And I understand the, the intent that those donors have. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not really something that the nonprofit needed. So I think it's also just making sure that you're having that dialogue and not just making an assumption about what you think people need. Um, because the nonprofit is there every day doing the work and working with the clientele and they are the experts in this space. So I think it, that's just an important thing to keep in mind. Um, and the other thing that I just like to always sort of stand on my soapbox about is the importance of, you know, supporting administrative capacity dollars for nonprofits, right? Like people oftentimes wanna support a very specific program um, or, and it's just being mindful that in order for that program to operate, there has to be humans there to do that, right? So, you know, we sometimes hear nonprofits talk about, oh, well, 95% of our funds go directly to services. Only 5% goes into administrative costs. And that's really not effective I mean, you can't run a business that way. Right. Like, you know, so, and it goes back to what I mentioned before about like nonprofits have technology needs and, you know, we know that staffing costs have gone up exponentially because of the staffing shortages that we've seen and all kinds of costs, you know, if they're really going to find new donors, they need a marketing budget. Like they need to be able to do more, um, Than just the work. And the work is certainly the most important piece, right? I mean, you don't want them spending 80% of their funds on administration, (laughs) but there needs to be a better balance, right? Like if you're running too lean and mean, you're probably really not having a a great impact. So So I feel like that was a a really long answer to your question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that was great. That was some, that was some really great advice. I feel like I'm taking away from that plan a little bit better and do your homework and the end of the year or the entire giving year will be less stressful for you and more impactful for the nonprofits. That's what I heard. So,
1: yeah, I mean, honestly, like, you know, if you're going to give an organization $600 in December, just give them $50 a month throughout the year. You know, I mean, most organizations have that feature on their website where you can just set up monthly giving. You don't even have to think about it. And they have also then a better way to plan themselves, right? Because they can project funding a little bit better than just holding their breath and waiting to see what happens in December.
0: So, Rachel, you mentioned um, a moment ago the staff that work for our nonprofits. And I know a large amount of energy for our nonprofits beyond administering the programs that they do is centered around fundraising. And I said Mm -hmm. earlier, oh, you know, you might be surprised giving away money isn't always easy, but certainly raising that money is even harder. Yeah. (laughs) What is, what's the best advice that you've ever received about how to fundraise and what's the best advice you've ever given to a donor?
1: Yeah, so I think the best advice about fundraising is really two things. Um, I had a hard time picking just one. (laughs) You know, I think the first is, the importance of building relationships with your donors outside of asking, right? Nobody wants to feel like they're an ATM. So if you're only talking to your donors, when you're asking them for money, that's just, it's not good. <laughs> and you're going to turn that donor off and they're eventually going to go away. And, you know, you're really never going to get the level of gift out of them that you're hoping for. Um, it's just really important to have more of an actual relationship from them. You know, it's. It's easier to tell a stranger no than it is a friend, (laughs) right? We all know that. So, you know, you should be treating your your donors like they're friends. Um, And the other thing is the importance Mm -hmm. of trust in the process and in the relationship. You know, the devil is always in the details when when it comes to working with donors, especially if it's a newer relationship. You know, if you tell, if they ask for more information about a program and you say, I'll get that to you this week. Like get that to them this week, right? Or email them on Friday afternoon and explain why you're not able to get it to them. And, you know, I'll have it to you on Monday or Tuesday next week. Like don't leave them hanging, you know, make sure that you're able to build some re- trust in that relationship. And it really starts with those little things. Um, I'm a, a flip side, right? Like the, the second part of your question was given to a donor. Um, so I think my advice that I like to tell philanthropists there is really like to make it easy, you know, give, because you care about a mission and you trust the leadership of that organization and then get out of their way. You know, there's, especially when we think about bigger donors, like all the reporting and, you know, wanting a ton of financial accountability and things like that, um, you're just making it more cumbersome for those people to do the work. And then they're managing you as a donor versus being able to do the work that you want them to do. Um, you know, and I think that that goes back to just also the fundraiser advice is that you need to have a relationship there. Um, so that there's some trust both ways and that you just know that organizations doing the greatest work that they can, Without having to babysit them. Um, you know, they're the experts in the field, right? Whatever it is that you're supporting. So let them do their work.
0: Absolutely. I've, I've been really encouraged to see more and more conversations around that trust based philanthropy as we've moved through and, and beyond the pandemic. I think that communication from our nonprofits has really helped on the donor side us to have that trust and really re examine. Yeah what does the application process look like? What does the reporting look like? Do we need all of this? Or can we, as you said, just get out of the way and let them do the work?
1: Yeah, yep.
0: So anything else that you would like to share (laughs) about this important work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, we packed a lot into this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't, you know, I would just encourage folks to you know, check out our website, right? If they have any additional questions about what I do here at Detroit Philanthropy, and that's just DetroitPhilanthropy.com. You know, folks that are interested in the philanthropy space can also certainly connect with us on LinkedIn. We share a lot of great information, resources there. Um, just you know, educational pieces, articles, blogs, things like that. That folks that do this work every day, so that people can really learn. And we also then share the information about community connections, which is our educational and networking series that we talked about already. So, you know, all the information about the dates and the speakers and all of that stuff is all shared on LinkedIn. So that's really a a great resource for folks that are interested.
0: Well, we can't end today without me putting my Margaret hat on and asking her favorite question that she always ends with, which is Rachel. Do you believe that you have grit and what do you think grit is?
1: I mean, so yes, <laughs> I would, I would love for someone to come on the show and tell Margaret, no, they don't have grit. <laughs> um, you know, to me, the definition of that word is really a combination of tenacity and not being afraid to get your hands dirty. And, you know, so to shoot my own horn, right. <laughs> I, you know, I started the business over it's been like five and a half years now, um, with no clients. Everyone said to me when I told them what I was doing, oh, like, did you do you have some clients? I was like, no, I just I I bought a laptop and ordered some business cards. <laughs> so um so you know, and now when I think about where I am now and being, you know, having a thriving base of clientele, having launched this networking and educational series um, that's had such great reception from our community and from the folks that are doing the work in the nonprofit sector, you know, and not only having done all of that, but also done it through COVID, right? Like in the midst of a, a two-year global pandemic, it's something that I'm proud of and, you know, something that I I do think, I think honestly, anybody that made it through COVID is, has grit, right? Like if you're a business and close up shop and <laughs> your nonprofit didn't go under, I think it, it, it does certainly speak to that tenacity and that, you know, you're not afraid to get in there and just do the work yourself. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for the great insights that you shared with
0: us and truly for all that you're doing to strengthen the nonprofit sector in our region. We really appreciate you.
1: Yes, and I really appreciate you and all the work that you're doing in the community as well. You and Margaret. (laughs) Thank
0: you. Margaret will return next month to wrap up the year. Grit. We can't seem to teach it. We know it when we see it. And there's a lot we can learn from it. And that's why we talk about it here on Grit. Please tell us what you think. And please tell your friends about Grit. Until next month, I'm Margaret Trimmer.